You're listening to Raising Curious Learners, a podcast from Britannica for Parents, where we talk to experts and discuss the issues and trends in child development, education, and parenting. Welcome back to Raising Curious Learners. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host, as usual, is Ann Gadzikowski. For many parents, the idea of the future can be a huge source of anxiety. Today, we're talking to an expert who's cluing us in to the one thing she says can guarantee your child's future success, empathy. So here at Britannica for Parents, we're always looking for ways to help parents and caregivers lighten their load, Raising children, as we know, is such a tough job. I know, especially these days. I wish there was a way that we could give families a magic wand that would help them relax and cope and enjoy being together. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have a magic wand. I would love one. But we do have a very special podcast guest today who has some fantastic parenting advice. Today, we're welcoming Dr. Michelle Borba, internationally recognized author and speaker. Her most recent book is called called Unselfie, How Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Borba. Oh, I am so glad and delighted to be able to talk to you. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart and soul. And I think we need to get back to just simple things that we know are proven and evidence-based that are going to make an a big difference on our children's lives. Well, we are especially excited to talk to you today because we know that so much of your work is connected to the concept of empathy. Can we start by um, asking you to define empathy and explain to us how it's different, it's something special and uh, not quite the same as just being nice to each other? Oh, thanks for that question because I think empathy is the absolute most quintessential human trait that we need to cultivate in our children. Now, the best news is it can be cultivated. Our kids are hardwired for it. First, we need to know what the heck it is. And I think it's feeling with someone, not feeling for someone. That's sympathy. But if you feel with someone, it's this amazing ability that actually helps a child later on to have this trajectory of a healthier relationship, less likely to get into conflicts with another person. They become deeper thinkers. They become more comfortable with differences. Everything the world needs is right in that thing called empathy. You know, when you were describing empathy just now, it reminded me of something that I experienced as a parent when my daughter was really little. You know, those bucket swings at the park that are for really small children and you just kind of plop them in the bucket and you swing them. Mm -hmm. So I remember swinging my daughter. She was probably less than a year old, maybe like 10 or 11 months old, like a little toddler. And anytime that there was another child swinging near her next to her or where she could see them and they were having a really good time, she would laugh. There'd be like a silly dad with a kid next to her and he'd be like doing some funny moves and she would just watch them and laugh. And sometimes I would just stop pushing her because she was so engaged in watching this other child have a good time and she was having a good time. So is that empathy? It's the seeds for it. And it's the trajectory towards it because she realizes, first of all, the other person exists. There's a glorious concept. The second thing is she's actually probably mirroring the other child. So when one child laughs, you notice the other one laughs. When one child cries, you notice the other one cries. That's really where it all begins because we now know that empathy kind of lies on a 
scaffold. It's kind of like a stepping stone. And, and it really is from womb to tomb. There's never too late to build empathy. Mm-hmm. But the very beginning stages of how we get from there is helping our child realize that the other person is there. And then they start mirroring that child's empathy levels. For instance, their emotions. Watch a little one. I mean, my two-year-old grandson was watching Daniel Tiger. And all of a sudden, his whole face looked like so sad. I thought he was going to cry. I said, are you okay? He says, I sad. I sad. Because Daniel Tiger was sad. That's so wonderful. And it means that you as the parent can go in there and start using the words. Are you sad? Yes. How are we going to make you happy? Because if we don't have the emotion words... We can't get to the next level to be able to say, how does she feel and what does she need? It's just this wonderful little framework that we just use those moments when our child is right there and experiencing those to be able to help them get to the next level. I love that story. So the seeds of empathy really start in a family, right? Yes. They start in a family. And the most amazing thing is they actually start in a newborn nursery because they have put recordings of babies crying. They've recorded the baby, put it into his little, into his little cubby or his incubator. Uh (laughs) And then when he hears himself cry, he doesn't cry. This is amazing. A miracle. When they put in a recording of another baby cry, he starts to cry. Oh, wow. That doesn't mean he has the cognitive ability to go, oh my gosh, that baby's so sad. I need to do something about it. But it does mean that he's already has that potential to feel with another We just need to nurture it along. So that's how it begins for babies and toddlers and little ones. Can you tell us a little bit more about what empathy looks like as children grow older? Yes. As children grow older, the first seeds we already talked about were like that emotional literacy and mirroring it. And that's really just copying somebody else's face. And then around the age of four, this real next step of a miracle comes in. It's called theory of mind. The child begins to realize, oh my gosh, he's got a different brain than me or he doesn't think the same as me. And then around the age of eight, see, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Ages by nature can be different. It could be six, it could be nine. But around the age of eight is usually this child has this next step called perspective taking. He's able to kind of step into the other's shoes and go, how would I feel if that happened to me? And oh my gosh, that's the moment that means we're really on a on a level where we can take it up to maturity because now we can use books, you know, later on when you're reading even To Kill a Mockingbird in, in high school, mm-hmm. how does Scout feel? What was Atticus Finch trying to tell Scout? The more we do that, the more we help our kids to be able to be really understanding. You don't have to agree with what the person is saying, mm. but try to understand where they're coming from. Wow, that's an important message. It's so important. Yeah, I think especially now. <laughs> we don't seem to be as adults doing that well enough. And you said this is a lifetime journey of learning how to be empathetic. So even as adults, there there's still more to learn, of course. You know, what's really fascinating is they've done some new studies on us. When we look as adults, and I always get the question, so what can I do to, to stretch my own empathy as a grown-up? One of the best things we now know is if you're in a literary book club, when you're reading like Bel Canto or again, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh-huh. or you're reading All the Light You Cannot See, kind of books that when you read them, you, oh, you can feel yourself being stirred. Mm-hmm. They've actually put us in MRIs and realized when they read different passages of different books, like All the Light You Cannot See versus Fifty Shades of Grey, we (laughs) flatlined with Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, a a beach read did nothing to us. Maybe it was enjoyable, but we got deeper into the part where our brains are and where compassion is kind of like behind our ears. Mm -hmm. So 
maybe step one is we want to be able to help our kids be more empathetic. Start with yourself. Get yourself into a literary book club or read some good literary fiction so you're stepping into the shoes. You'll stretch your own empathy levels. And I don't think there's any better toolkit as a parent to be able to empathize with your child. I agree. I think books are an underrated way that you can learn empathy, not just as adults. I think it's really important. And I am hopeful because I feel like book clubs have gained in popularity, especially this year. But I do feel like books are just for all ages that create the foundation of empathy because in books, characters are so much more vulnerable and you're able to see all of those sides of people and how they feel. And so I think it is a good foundation. So that's a great, that's a great tip for parents. Well, here's another tip for parents. And I so agree with what you just said, because when I was writing on selfie and I knew empathy was so critical, I was trying to figure out if it's so critical and all the evidence says we can cultivate it, then what are the habits that we can use to cultivate it? Mm -hmm. And we already talked about the first one, which is emotional literacy. Start talking emotions far with your children. And then the second one is moral identity, which means help your child see themselves as a caring person or that kind and caring matters in your home. Just keep emphasizing. It. We're so quick to say what you get as opposed to what kind thing did you do? Yeah. So the child needs to realize caring matters. Number three, we talked about perspective taking, getting into the shoes of the other one. Four, bingo. You just mentioned it. And that is what I call moral imagination. That's using books and films. I don't care if you're two or 45. The same thing works because the kind of images or books we read can either elevate our empathy levels or diminish us. Let's be picked on what we read to our kids. Let's expose them and let's turn off the news right now. All that doom and gloom, children who are very empathetic after a while, that's going to take their empathy levels down because they see the world as a mean and scary place. Mm -hmm. And so when we keep going up the levels of all those nine habits, we're trying to get them to be able to get to moral courage, to step in and do the right thing and help another person. And this is stating the obvious, but we're talking about all genders. You know, it's hard for people to realize that that all children, no matter what gender, need to focus on empathy. You know what? Yale studies is nodding up and down and going, yes, because, <laughs> and here we're all going to feel guilty as moms. I'm a mom of three boys. But I looked at a study on Yale, and what they did is that they were watching us as moms with our two-year-old sons versus our two-year-old daughters. And what did we do? We talked emotions far more with our two-year-old girls than we do with our two-year-old boys. In fact, it was all about, oh, you look so happy. Oh my gosh, how wonderful. Oh, sweetheart, that's so glorious to the girl. What do we do with the boys? Oh, boys don't cry. Oh boy, you'll lose your friends if you do that. If we keep doing that, what they discovered is that even by the age of five, there's already a pink blue divide with emotions. Our boys walk into kindergarten far less prepared for emotional literacy because we haven't been talking it nearly enough. The solution is real simple. Talk emotions naturally. You don't need a program. You don't need a tutor. You just find simple little ways to talk about it because we've already discovered that teachers really appreciate an empathetic kid as they get older and older because they're deeper thinkers. They get far deeper into the character or the history lesson or the science or how their friend is feeling. And that's what the world needs. Let's go one step more. That's why Harvard also says, Harvard Business Review, that empathy is now the top employability factor Mm. because they're looking for employers who can get into the shoes of the client and go, how would I feel if that happened to me? It doesn't start at age 22. Mm -hmm. It starts when our kids are younger and we keep 
on building. I am really curious though, because you had your very popular TEDx talk in 2016. So that's already four years ago. You know, I think we can all agree that empathy has started to become a little bit more of a topic to discuss in the last four years. So have you seen, again, COVID aside, because I'll ask that related question in a bit, but have you seen any improvements in empathy among kids or, you know, how have things changed since you had your talk? That is a fascinating one. When I wrote on selfie. That was like five years ago. And empathy was kind of seen as soft and fluffy. It wasn't transformational. I did a TED talk called Empathy is a Verb. And all of a sudden, people started listening to it. And the fascinating thing is when you listen to the news, all of a sudden, empathy is now spoken as a word. You hear it a lot in politics of empathy. My concern is that we may, in the mainstream, may be seeing it as critical, but as parents, not quite simply doing it enough. Teachers were the ones who bought into it. Counselors were the ones who bought into it. And I think they were buying into it because they were seeing a dip. The children coming in because stress levels were going up. We've seen that. That's nothing new here. We're seeing a tremendous spike in stress levels of children prior to COVID. Well, as stress builds, you dial your empathy down because you've got to be in survival mode. And what's happening to adults as their stress builds, you dial your empathy down. And pretty soon what happens is burnout 101. And there's the other thing that's happening. Counselors are always like maybe I think 10 years ahead of the game. They're seeing this is something that kids need. We're put too much emphasis on test scores and GPA and we've failed to raise the whole kit. Mm -hmm. And now what we're dealing is we're seeing a backlash of horrific stress and mental health needs. I just did an interviews with teens and I asked them prior to COVID, how are you all feeling? Every kid who's a teen told me we're the most stressed out generation there is. We're not able to read one another. We're always looking at phones, not each other. Mm -hmm. And they said, we fear we're being raised. This is one kid that just broke my heart. We're being raised as products, Mm. more like a test score as opposed to a kid. It's all about what you get as opposed to who you are. That's very sad because you put it all together. It's that relationships we knew know are the health and the vital bus that keep us together. Now we've got social distancing, so we've got another problem, but got to keep it in mind in the big picture what's happening to our children. Okay, so it's time for a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America everyone. Let's take a moment to talk about today's sponsor. Did you know Britannica designed a safe and trusted site that allows kids to be just that, kids? On Britannica Kids, you'll find content from great intellects across the globe, including leading educators, Pulitzer Prize winners, and Nobel laureates. And it's all designed with kids in mind. Go to kids.britannica.com kids30 for 30% off your subscription today. Because the news around us changes by the second, reliable information is more important than ever. Consider supporting our quest for the truth with a Britannica Premium membership and gain access to over 1 million pages of fact-checked content. Go to Britannica.com premium30 and get 30% off your subscription today. 
I am hearing a lot more about social emotional learning, um, at least among educators. And I think parents and families are starting to get more curious about it too, probably because of COVID, because we have kids learning at home and are really lonely and feeling isolated. So can you talk a little bit about how your work applies to the current situation? Actually, it dovetails absolutely perfectly. Because the first thing is we need to realize, you, you mentioned the question, and I think we need to go one step more with it. We're at a moment that I think is a perfect storm that can either take empathy up or down. Financial instability, stress levels going up, distance learning, re being removed and uh, social distance from each other. All of those take empathy down. But on the other hand, don't go raising the white flag and say there's nothing we can do about it. Our children are lonely. So what do we do? Well, we get creative. We've always done that. Let's just get creative. We can do Zoom playdates if they're regular. It's not like, okay, let's let's find a kid who can go online. We can do Zoom buddies for learning. We did paired sharing in a classroom when it's my turn and it's your turn. Now turn and discuss or flash your flashcards with your friend and help each other. We can do the same thing when they're done with Zoom learning. What a great thing to have a friend who can now be the buddy at three o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe the two of you just get online and look at each other in the face and find out how you're doing and just flash those flashcards or discuss your books. The other thing I'm seeing parents doing is Zoom book clubs for kids. Let's all read Wonder together. Oh gosh, don't you love that book? Kids love that book. Why well, ask middle school kids, what's your favorite book? They're telling me The Outsiders. I'm looking at it and go, really? That's like 50 years <laughs> old. And they go, yeah, but it's helping us get into the other shoes of the kid and understand what it feels like to be excluded. I'm going, that's exactly what you need. Teens are saying, would you talk to us more about what's going on, about hate, about racism? That is history when kids that that is history, you know. But parents need to stop thinking that it has to go away. No, we need to know about it because it's our world. Mm -hmm. Kids at every age are craving this. We just need to be creative and step up to the plate. Yeah. And I am curious on because it's created so much isolation this year, but do you feel like you can get and grow and strengthen the empathy on Zoom? Is it almost like as long as you can see the other person, whether it's through FaceTime or Zoom or Google or whatever, that they're able to still tap into the empathy skills? Because I, I wonder if, if they have to be kind of there to not only see the person, but also just kind of feel their presence. It's a good question. I think what we need to do is prime the child a little more because this is a new, a whole new avenue of going, now we're looking at a screen and not looking at the person sitting next to me. Mm -hmm. But how glorious to be able to say, you know what, let's call grandma, let's FaceTime her, but let's listen to her voice so you'll know when she's tired or let's watch her face so you'll know when she's happy or stressed. Mm. Because kids, middle school kids, Common Sense Media did a report that said that middle school kids were more comfortable texting than talking. They were looking down down, not up. What they were then doing is not using a phone. They were texting. So they weren't listening to voice tone and they weren't looking at body posture. I think what we look at is emotional literacy is only looking at a face where you can learn it from voice. You can learn it from posture. In fact, it was fascinating. I was, I was working at the Ray Charles School for Deaf and Blind Children uh, about empathy levels. And I discovered something that was absolutely, I wasn't expecting that blind children have a heightened level of empathy over deaf children. I go, how could that be? They can't can't see the person. But I discovered what the blind child does is compensate by learning to hear the voice tone. Hmm. Now, 
the deaf child very often at a young age, the parent may not know that the child is deaf and doesn't know how to communicate. So it just means that they're a little bit slower in the commodity of catching up. Look, no matter what our child level is, all we need to do is figure out how to just tweak it a little bit and help the child learn. Are you an audio learner? Are you a visual learner? But for heaven's sakes, during this time during COVID, when we're certainly into social distancing, we know our kids are being robbed of what they need above all else is that buddy sitting side by side. Mm -hmm. But maybe there's a silver lining. It's more time that we have families sitting side by side, family meals that we didn't do before. We got to take advantage of those because, you know, this is going to go by very quickly and these are going to be lost moments if we don't say they're stuck in the house with us. Maybe we can take advantage of it. Yeah. At the same time, I've heard a lot already in this um, about compassion fatigue. And I wanted to kind of circle back to that because, you know, we just spent a little bit of time talking about how we could use COVID to strengthen empathy among kids using video. But at the same time, because everyone is so stressed, the compassion fatigue must be at an all-time high. And so first, because I don't know if all of our audience understands what compassion fatigue is, so I wanted to hear your definition, but then I also want to hear how you think we as parents and for our kids can sort of mitigate that and make sure that we're not reaching a compassion fatigue when right now it's more crucial to be empathetic than ever, I would say. Think of compassion fatigue as probably the best example of it are our first responders. You watch them being so exhausted. They have such empathy for people, the doctors, the nurses. And then after a while, they watch just a, a steady death toll and they watch so much oh, suffering. And after a result, what happens is their own levels of empathy go down because they have to protect themselves and they're absolutely at an exhausted level of giving back. Mm -hmm. So what we're finding is the Boston University and many major universities are now helping first responders keep their empathy open and up. One way, if you yourself as an adult, if you realize, oh my gosh, I'm really suffering, my empathy levels is going down. It probably is because you're looking at people in an affect level, but there's different kinds of empathy. One kind is affect. And you can see that in a child, they watch the movie Bambi and they're a basket case. They go into their room and they're just like sobbing their way through. That's affective empathy. But there's also cognitive empathy. That's the child who you think, I don't know if he has empathy. He's always so quiet. Not necessarily. That's a child who may be trying to understand where the other person's coming from. Mm. So one way you can actually help your compassion fatigue is go from affect into cognitive and talk yourself into, hey, I need to think this through and not put this on my heart so much because it's exhausting me. Now, how you take that up a level for your children, you use the science. Step number one, back to the teens I interviewed. I say, what are you guys doing? We're so stressed, but what are you doing to help? One group says, well, we're doing quarantine bags. And when, what's that? We're worried about our friends who don't have access to counselors. They were depressed before that. We can hear it in their voice. We wanted to do something for them. So we got a group of friends. We're social distancing, Dr. Borba. We're not with each other. We're wearing masks. But I said, so what are you doing? Well, we're planning this on by text where we put together. Oh, this is so wonderful. We put together like little bags, like lunch bags. And we put things inside them, like maybe a note, a handwritten note that we miss you or how are you doing? Or maybe a um, gum or maybe a candy. And we decorate the bag. We drop the quarantine bag at the end of the driveway. And 
and then we go. It's absolutely amazing. It makes us feel so good. But each of the kids, when they get our bags, calls us up in tears thinking, thank you for thinking about me. I didn't realize somebody was thinking about me. Okay, now what's that do? One of the best ways to get rid of the compassion fatigue or the best ways to boost empathy right now and reduce your stress is give, not get. Mm -hmm. Hey, Mrs. Jones is next door. She's all by herself. You think she's lonely? I think she is too. What can we do? Good idea. Let's bake her some cookies and drop us off at the porch. Or those precious children in Ohio who realized that their neighbor was so lonely, so they dragged their cellos onto her porch, sat there and played the cellos to her. The children were social distancing from her, but they take a video of it. The video went viral. Everybody cried when I'm crying, just telling you the story. Uh But it was the kids coming up with the idea, what can you do to help whoever is lonely? Some kids, it could be playing a game. So it could be the cello. Some kids, it could be the quarantine bag. Mobilize your children's hearts. Ask them what we can do. And you will find one of the best ways to keep their hearts open, their empathy open and boost their stress down. I also really like how you said, ask them what they want to do. Because if you're giving them the, you know, the independence and authority to choose what they want to give, then they're going to be much more invested Then you're just like, you should do this. The other thing, it becomes your idea, not theirs. What you want to do is empower the child. Oh my gosh, when I was writing on Selfie, my favorite chapter is chapter nine. I interviewed dozens of kids. All the teachers would say, go figure out how that kid became so darn compassionate. That kid is absolutely glorious. It didn't make any difference if they were five or 17. But I remember interviewing a kid. Gosh, he must have been around nine. His name was Nathan. I'll never forget Nathan. I said, everybody's talking about you, Nathan, that you're amazing, that you were helping homeless people. How did you start that? He said, I was driving and it was a rainy day and I was in the backseat and my mom was driving along the street and I saw this man and he looked so wet and so lonely. And I asked mom, can we give that man that extra overcoat? Daddy's coat's in the backseat. Can we give him the overcoat? My mom stopped the car. She said, sure, Nathan. I took the coat. I gave it to the man. The look in his face was like, He started to cry a little bit and he said, thanks for thinking of me. I got into the car. I got in the back seat. My mom drove away. I couldn't stop looking at him. He was kept waving and kept waving. When I got home, I said, mom, we got to do this again. Pretty soon we didn't have any coats left in the house. Pretty soon there was no coats left in the neighborhood. (laughs) All the rest of the kids started to help. But he said, that's the moment. It was giving it to one person. And it really made me realize, wow, I can do something really good to make somebody feel better. Oh, there's nothing more powerful. So when we're thinking about our listeners, our parents who are at home, and many of them are, um, you know, feeling overwhelmed or feeling stressed out, as we were talking about at the beginning, if you had just one piece of advice or wisdom to offer them, what do you think would be at the top of your list? I think what we need to realize is that we got to take care of ourselves before we take care of our kids, because our stress really does spill over to our children. Mm. We want so much to do so much for them. And maybe this is a time to stop being a verb and be a noun. Just be, not do. Mm. And the reason for that, this is psychology that looked at thousands and thousands of studies on parenting. I mean, there's been a lot of studies on really, truly what makes a good parent. And number one on the list, when they looked at the most highly correlated factors of good parenting, the number one on the list was no brainer. They loved the kid. Okay. Duh. What's number two on the list? Had nothing to do with the child. Number two on the list was the parent who figured out how to manage their stress. Mm. Because 
the parent who managed their stress had a child who was less stressed. That's why the habit number five in Unselfy of the nine habits of empathy is self-regulation. We've got to learn to cope with our own stress levels. And this is an absolutely goldmine opportunity right now in the months when our children are with us at home, where we can also teach our children how to cope. This is an uncertain, uncertain world. If it's not COVID, I live in California where there's fires. If it's not a fire, it's going to be an earthquake. If it's not an earthquake, it's going to be something else. Our children are living and uncertainty. And one of the things that they're going to have to learn besides empathy is how to cope, how to learn a coping skill. Maybe the first thing we do all month long is just identify each other's stress signs. Look, mommy, you're starting to get stressed because you're doing that weird thing with your eyes. That's what my kids would tell me. (laughs) And then you can turn to your kids and go, looks like you're getting stressed because your feet are starting to go back and forth or your hands are starting to go into a little fist. This isn't discipline. This is gloriously, look what's happening. And then what you can do something wonderful is one Once the kids all know their stress signs, you can do step two. Everybody can come up with a stress sign. You just put your hand straight out. Don't say a thing. Just put your hand straight out. That's your timeout signal. That means I need some space. And number three is, what do you do? Oh, this is wonderful. Make a calm down corner in your house. Mm. Have your kids help you make the calm down corner. Don't you do it for the kids. They can grab their beanbag chairs. They can grab pillows. They can grab books. Teens say they want music. Little kids say maybe it's a koosh ball. But every time you start to feel that stress sign, you give yourself the timeout signal. Go to that calm down corner and everybody in the house will start using that calm down corner the rest of your child's life. They're going to know their signs. They're going to know they need to be able to take those deep, slow breaths. You can teach them deep, slow breathing as well. But I think we forget that they first need to know their signs. They second need to be able to say, I'm getting stressed or I need to calm down. And third, they need a place to go. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Michelle Borba, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. It was. We appreciate your sharing your expertise and giving us advice on how to develop empathy. We really appreciate it. So thank you so much. We're so welcome. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Raising Curious Learners. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Michelle Borba, author of Unselfie, How Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World, for giving us some tips on how we can help encourage our children to build their empathy even during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host is Ann Getzkowski. Our audio engineer and editor for this episode is Emily Goldstein. If you liked this episode, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and share with your friends. This program is copyrighted by Encyclopedia Britannica Incorporated, all rights reserved. Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by Britannica for Parents, a free site with expert advice for your tech-savvy family needs. Whether it's explaining Zoom to your three-year-old, navigating your child's new friendship with Siri, or more serious topics like talking to young children about the police or sending your kids back to school during the COVID-19 pandemic, we're here to help with resources for parents of all age groups. Check us out at parents.britannica.com.